The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 6th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The results of the Wisconsin election are in. And the candidate with a record of spewing bullying vile against vulnerable groups won. No, not Trump. That guy lost. I'm talking about an election day race that was barely noticed outside of Wisconsin. Rebecca Bradley won a 10-year term as a justice on the state Supreme Court, despite some youthful indiscretions. You know, she got wild in college, didn't we all, right? We've been there. Keg stands, loud parties, late nights, anti-gay screeds like something out of the Westboro Baptist Church. Milwaukee's WTMJ Channel 4 reports. Bradley described homosexuality as an abnormal sexual preference, saying the homosexuals and drug addicts who do essentially kill themselves and others through their own behavior deservedly receive none of my sympathy. She also said people would be better off contracting AIDS than cancer because the politically correct disease will get all the funding. Wisconsin voters heard all this. It's one of those states where they do tons of ads for all the candidates, even for the judges. So they heard all this stuff. They weighed it. They processed it. But then maybe they saw this ad on their TV screens. A fair and impartial judiciary protects all of our rights. And Justice Rebecca Bradley gets it. Colleagues call her measured, fair, willing to work with anyone. Judges applaud her insight, hard work, compassion. And unlike the many sentences strung together from the actual mind of Rebecca Bradley, the word compassion in that ad floats across the screen as Rebecca Bradley sits at a sturdy-looking table while wearing a black robe. So that must be the more accurate description, right, than all those essays that she put pen to? Now, to be fair, that was back in 1992. But to be even more fair, every vicious, horrible homophobe that I met in 1992 is still a vicious, horrible homophobe, is still a nasty, nasty person today. We can all evolve. We all grow. We realize certain words, certain jokes may be hurtful. But this isn't some private overheard conversation. This was a column that she said, I've got to write under my byline. These were letters to the editor. Same deal where the explicit purpose was to make the point about queers. I was alerted to this story, by the way, by Jerry Buting and Dean Strang. They are the lawyers from Making a Murderer. I did a live event with them, and their worry was that a lot of attention on Wisconsin, but what will happen is all this turnout on the Republican side will lift her into office. And of course, these are the kind of guys as lawyers, as defense lawyers, who are not looking forward to what's now a five to two conservative to liberal uh, state Supreme Court. Now, I don't know if Jerry and Dean were right. I do know that Rebecca Bradley won 52 to 48%. She won by about 90,000 votes. But the Democrats had a pretty high turnout too in their presidential primary. But the Republicans did have 100,000 more voters than the Democrats. So I'm going to say it's highly likely that Bradley would have won anyway. So here she is. She's a 10-year member of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, where just a few years ago, one justice choked another justice. Maybe he didn't choke her. Here's the story. The female justice, the male justice says, rushed at him with her fists raised, and the male justice's hands, quote, came into contact with her neck when he raised them in self-defense. Uh-huh. Objection overruled. 
On the show today, I spiel about another election in Wisconsin, the one you thought I was talking about, Bernie's big win, and why it just might matter, but very likely won't. But first, a major art exhibition featuring the works of victims of the Holocaust is being mounted in Germany, and the GIST's art expert, yes, Mary Lane is our art correspondent, joins me with this report. Let's talk mattresses, mattry, if you will, because we are talking plural, because we're going to do side-by-side mattress comparison of the mattry, regular, old store-bought guy trying to tell you, oh, this is our special bouncy foam mattress, right? He's getting a huge cut of it. That mattress costs, I don't know, $1,500. A Casper mattress, I'll just give you the top of the line, king size, $950. Or eight fifty for a queen, or seven fifty for a fall, or guess you see the pricing model. What's a twin going to cost? Gotcha. It's not six fifty. It's six hundred for a twin XL and five hundred for a twin. But it's not just price. It's not just convenience. And it is convenience because you could try a Casper. You could sleep on it for a hundred days, and then you could give it back. And we'll say thanks. Free delivery, painless returns for a Casper. But the truly amazing thing about Casper is it has this combination of latex foam and memory foam. It's a one of a kind. It's a hybrid mattress. So I think I've gotten to the quality part. I definitely started off with the cost part. And then that's the convenience part. Let me say it again. Free delivery and returns within a hundred day period. So why wouldn't you want to try your mattress and live on and with and near and about your mattress rather than just go to a showroom and take that guy's word for it? It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. And to get $50 off any mattress, go to casper.com slash gist and use the promo code gist. Terms and conditions apply. As a historical event, the Holocaust has been well-covered and well-documented in history, in literature, in documentaries, and in art, in some art. But there is a new exhibit at the German Historical Museum that does something I've not heard of, which is to take actual art from concentration camps, secreted out of concentration camps in most instances, and put it on display and talk about the lives of the artists and what it meant. Mary Lane covers the European art scene for the New York Times. She's actually writing a book about Hitler as an artist. She comes on the gist to talk about art quite often. I'm glad she's here now. Hello, Mary. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. So there are about a hundred works of art. How many works did the curators get to choose from? It would seem to me that it was pretty uncommon for an artist to be able to pursue art in a concentration camp and then afterwards to um, spirit it or secret it out. Yeah, well, some of the artworks were created in hiding. For example, Nellie Toll, the little girl who just created art for several years while she was locked in what was essentially a very large closet. But other artists, they tended to be, because they were already educated and they may not have been professional artists, but they were skilled artists, they actually worked in concentration camps propaganda departments, which is where most of the posters for the non Nazis and the Hitler Youth and books educating kids about how wonderful the Nazis were, were actually created. And so they would at night use the artistic supplies they could smuggle out to create this type of art, whereas during the day they were using those to create propaganda uh, under threat of death. And the thing is, most of the works of art 
in this exhibition were donated very quickly to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial Exhibition in Israel. So the curator, Eliane Murray Rosenberg, she had to pick between 6,000 works of art to come up with the 100 works created by 50 artists from the Holocaust that are ultimately in this exhibition. So the centerpiece is a painting of a yellow butterfly on barbed wire with uh, the Spanish mountains in the distance. It's by two men, Carl Bodek and Kurt Conrad Lowe. What's the story behind this piece? So they were in a concentration camp together and they really struck up a friendship and decided that they wanted to create art together. Typically when we think about art being created, we think of one person sitting for a long time and making a great work of art. But in this situation, in a concentration camp, there was just so much fevered secrecy that Often, if you wanted to just create a good work of art, you had to have several people working on it, even if it was a tiny sketch. So they were determined to create a piece of art that didn't have to do with the direct trauma that they were witnessing every day, but had to do with something of hope. So they collaborated together to just kind of hand off the artwork, just work on it step by step until it was created before it could be smuggled out. Right. And this is, I don't know if it's unique, but this is striking because it has both elements. It has the barbed wire, but then it looks beyond the barbed wire, sees through some dingy brown structures, and we see the mountains and we see the butterfly. But it seems to me that most of the art is either, actually most of it seems to be escapism. Some of it seems to be representation of what people were seeing. So you want to pick an example of each of those strains? In terms of escapism, you know, you have the canary on the barbed wire that's very much aimed for adults. But then in another situation, you had Pavel Fantel, who was born in 1903 and died in 1945 and was in the Theresienstadt ghetto. And he actually depicted in one of his pieces behind the fence two guards just looking like complete cartoonish buffoons like you'd find in any kind of kid's comic book. And then a little boy who's supposed to be his son is uh, jumping over the fence into this great big world of trees and sunshine at his son Thomas. And Thomas was four years old Mm. when he and his dad went into the ghetto. And so he knew that something weird beyond his typical routine was going on, but he didn't know quite what it was. So his dad you know, had a form of escapism, much like the Canaries, but it was more aimed at giving his son an idea that they were in this world and that was their world for right now, but there was a bigger world waiting out there for them and it was going to be much better and much more fun than the world they were in now. If you look at someone like Nellie Toll, her mother took the exact same approach when they were living in a room for several years. And ultimately, that's what helped her cope and move to New Jersey in the United States, where she's still living. Yeah. And so Nellie Toll's art, which uh, was highly featured in your New York Times piece, Girls in the Field, Bright Dresses, Green, Lush, Rolling Fields, Pure Escapism. And then Nellie Toll's the, I think, only one of the artists who's still alive. And you talk to her extensively. There's something very, very striking about the fact that 
the work by Pavel Fantol looks so similar to Nelly Toll. I mean, he was essentially the age of her father, and she was a very little girl. And I was just really fascinated by the coping mechanisms of her and her mother in terms of living in this very tiny room, and it was rented to them by a man who was very abusive to his own wife. And the mom was just so great about telling Nellie that, you know, they were in this room because she was such a good artist and she wanted to give her little girl, you know, time to focus on her art. And obviously Nellie, years later, realized this was just a total coping mechanism. But at the time, she thought this was so great that she completely fixated day after day on creating works of art. So the Nazis famously, infamously, that's a word that always attaches to the Nazis, struck out against artists. Hitler was incensed by what he deemed deviant art. Are there any of those artists represented here, the ones who were famous as artists before being rounded up, persecuted? Yeah, Felix Nussbaum is by far the most, and many would argue only, famous artist in this show. He's an incredibly talented artist. If you look at his technique. It's much more deliberate and much more trained than everyone else. But I hate to say it, but it's, you know, he worked so hard to have symbolism in his artwork. And perhaps his coping mechanism was, in fact, order. But he didn't want to portray the things around him. Rather, he wanted to stick to something a bit more cerebral. So he created a work of art with a man crouched over himself and there's a globe in the corner. You know, the symbolism there is quite clear. He's trying to sort of escape towards that. It was created in 1939 and it has much more to do with the exile period that a lot of intellectuals were a part of than the day-to-day life in a concentration camp, which... I find to be a very valid topic, but it's yeah. it's much less visceral than the other works, despite his being the most technically precise artist in the show. And my last question is, Mary, I know you're working on a book about Hitler, Hitler as an artist, how that explains him. As you are a person who thinks about Hitler and art and the Holocaust and art, did this give you any new ideas? I think the biggest idea that it gave me was the fact that there were a lot of people who were in concentration camps where they knew they were doomed to die who were creating this art, but there were a lot of other people in more prominent positions who were just creating propaganda, and they were putting their lives significantly more in danger by creating this art. Some of them survived, some of them didn't, but the overwhelming sentiment that they had was just screw you to Hitler. They they will they actually risked their lives and risked being tortured more than they already were by stealing art supplies to just create art back in their bedrooms. And, you know, if you look at the there's a little boy who created art who was deported who He stole supplies just to create art, and I think that it shows something about the kind of defiance that people had at the time in order to create art. Mary M. Lane, European art contributor to the New York Times, writing a book about Hitler as an artist, and uh, you know her from the gist. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. Are you a strategic thinker who loves Slate? Are you a somewhat strategic thinker who really loves Slate? 
Are you a really strategic thinker who somewhat loves Slate? If you're anywhere on that continuum, we invite you to come work with Slate's editors to develop plans for expanding our coverage, for increasing our audience. So apply to be our director of strategy and audience development. Apply at slate.com strategy. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you know of that strategic person who loves Slate. Or maybe you just know of that strategic person who doesn't yet love Slate, but you could sell them on Slate. Anyway, help us out. Slate.com slash strategy. And now the spiel tabulating the Badger Ledger. So the Wisconsin primary raises a question. That question is not this question. Are the presidential frontrunners losing their grips on the nominations? No, for two reasons. Donald Trump never had a grip. I don't mean that figuratively. In this election, he had more of a grasp, a short-fingered grasp on the title frontrunner. And Hillary Clinton is still very, very, very much the frontrunner. The question is how to characterize the Sanders win. It was big. It was impressive. It was by 135,000 votes in an honest-to-goodness primary. Big win by big margin. He has won seven of the last eight Democratic contests. Average margin of victory, 40 points. Credit is due on a roll. Sure, I'll give you on a roll. But hold on before you say momentum. Bernie Sanders on a roll. Wisconsin, his sixth victory in the last seven contests, giving him a burst of momentum ahead of his showdown with Hillary. I don't think he has momentum. Well, if you define momentum as has he won a bunch in a row, then yeah, he's won a bunch in a row. Is that momentum? No, momentum means going forward. Is it true that he's stronger going forward because of what he's done in the past? Well, he's stronger than he would have been if he'd had lost. But there's another way to look at the states that he has won. Bernie Sanders has done extraordinarily well among white and liberal voters. Vermont, Iowa, New Hampshire, those are the top three states with white and liberal voters in the Democratic primary. Wisconsin is the 10th most white and liberal state, 87% white, in fact. So is this momentum, or is this a bunch of good results in that specific collection of states that happen to have very few black people? All right, here are the states where exit polls show that the highest percentage of black voters voted in the Democratic primaries. Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia. Here are the states where Hillary Clinton racked up her biggest victories by percent of vote. Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia. Now, Louisiana doesn't have exit polls, but after Mississippi, it has the highest percentage of population of black voters. Unlike the other states I listed, Hillary Clinton got over 70% of the vote there. So all this talk about, is the media writing off Bernie? Is Bernie the victim of the media being in a bubble or in the bag? You only hear that Bernie can't win because the media is out of touch. Maybe that would be a good argument if it weren't for the presence of black people. The Democratic Party is about 60% white, about a quarter black, and Hillary continues to win the support of black people by margins of over two to one, over nine to one in a bunch of those southern states. And these contests, which are almost all caucuses, where Bernie has done well, have very few black people. A lot of the pro-Bernie arguments are great arguments or would be good arguments if it weren't for black people. Like, Bernie loses in the South. But you know what? That doesn't matter because Democrats can't win in the South. Yeah, if it weren't for black people. 
If you say, well, who cares about Mississippi? No Democrat's going to win Mississippi anyway. You're saying, who cares about the 30% of the population that is the majority of the Democratic Party there? Their only chance at presidential enfranchisement is the primary. And furthermore, we said Democrats can't win the South until Obama won North Carolina and Virginia. And who knows, a disastrous Republican like Trump just might put a state like Georgia in play for Democrats. It's not a conspiracy. It's not a bubble. It's not super delegates. And come on, Hillary's gotten over 9 million votes and Bernie's gotten 6.6 million because of black people. The entire difference is black people. Now, you could say, yeah, but Mike, if you change black people to young people, you can make the same argument about Bernie Sanders. Each candidate has their own demographic strength. And I say that's true, but almost all young people become old people, but no black people become white people. In fact, if the next president serves two full terms, a lot of the young people who are supporting him now will no longer be young people. All of the black people will stay black people. I have been accused of being in the tank for Clinton or being unfair to Bernie. Listen, I'd like to see Bernie win the nomination. I would. I think it would be interesting. Because if he won the nomination, it would mean that he'd have to do something to win the votes of black people. And if he won the votes of black people, it would mean that he'd have shown me something as a candidate that I'd find surprising and quite probably likable, or that she'd have done something so terrible that you would say, wow, you'd never want her as a nominee in the general. And listen, if Bernie supporters feel this is all unfair, feel that he's done nothing to repel black voters, that he has a good record on civil rights, that he thinks black lives matter, I sympathize. I really do sympathize with you. I know why you're frustrated. But sympathy doesn't win you elections. In Democratic primaries, you know who does? Black people. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi once penned a series of strongly worded letters to the editor of her college paper, demanding not only more soup, but a greater diversity of chowders and bisques in the dining hall. Steve Lichtheit had a column in his college paper called Stephen's Grievances. It was mostly angry screeds against hacky sackers. We've recently unearthed a college experiment by Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. It was an early version of the podcast. Every four minutes, a different person in his freshman dorm would be told to open a window and shout out the thing that he or she was bothered by. Most of the complaints were about soup and hacky sack. The gist, I definitely would have written more letters to the editor of the Emery Wheel, but you know what? We had really good soup. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.